thank you very much, Andrew, for that kind introduction and for inviting me to this um, uh, interesting audience, which uh, I can see from the faces can't be easily identified as any profession or, or calling. Um, so um, I, I, whether my remarks will be uh, will engage with the thoughts that you've already had or not, I, I'm not sure. Obviously, I'm talking about these subjects as a, a philosopher and uh, trying to sketch some of the philosophical issues which have been uh, aroused by the current interest in neuroscience and the science of the brain generally, and some of the implications that have become popular in the uh, not only in the middlebrow press but also in my own discipline. Uh, in, by way of interpreting the results of neuroscience in terms of traditional philosophical problems. Now I'm going to show you various uh, sentences on slides. These sentences may or may not relate to what I say, uh, but um, at least they'll give you something to look at other than me, so I shall feel a bit more confident in saying what I say. Uh, uh, this, uh, what I put here, is the, the Churchland Project, is what I'm trying to explain now. This is a project uh, initiated by two people called Churchland, uh, the uh, husband and wife, in fact, but in particular associated with Patricia Churchland, who's a Canadian philosopher uh, who wrote a book called Neurophilosophy uh, quite uh, some time ago now, perhaps, uh, I think, almost 30 years ago, in which she put forward the following idea. First of all, that our ways of referring to each other and to ourselves uh, in terms of the mind and mental states, perception, emotion, desire, belief, and so on, that these ways are perfectly legitimate <coughs> and they belong to a systematic enterprise, which she called folk psychology, that the systematic attempt to understand each other's behavior uh, in order to explain, predict, and relate to each other in a coherent way. And this theory that we have, embedded in our ordinary ways of describing each other, she called folk psychology. And she saw it as a kind of proto-science, let's say the first attempt at a science of human behavior. And in the terms of this science, the, the word mind is a theoretical term, uh, like the term atom in physics. Now, it doesn't denote anything that we can observe, but nevertheless, it denotes uh, a, a theoretical entity which has an explanatory role, uh, an entity which, uh, the reference to which, can help to explain our behaviour. Uh, and in particular, it can help to explain our behaviour in terms of the beliefs and desires that we um, entertain, from which our actions proceed. Now, this is um, a fairly harmless suggestion in itself, and when it comes to thinking of animals, we recognize that something like this must be true. When, when you uh, are interested in what a, a dog or a horse or a cat is doing, you will naturally think in terms of, first of all, what it thinks is happening in front of it, and secondly, what it wants to happen. Now that, uh, it thinks that there is a predator moving in the hedgerow, and it wants to avoid it, and that's why it shines. That's a perfectly normal explanation of a horse's behaviour. And um, that explanation involves concepts of belief and desire and seems to be a, an ordinary causal explanation. So why aren't all our ways of referring to the mind like that? 
if you think just perhaps they are. But, of course, like every science, uh, folk psychology stands to be replaced by the science which explains things better, more economically, or in terms of uh, empirically more testable uh, hypotheses. And the great problem with folk psychology is that it involves a theoretical entity, the mind, which is unobservable. Unobservable in terms of ordinary empirical investigations. So we ought to look instead at the science that might replace uh, folk psychology as the end of our behaviour. And the obvious um, candidate is neuroscience. That's to say the science of the brain. Uh, now, uh, many philosophers independently of this thought, had um, come up with the view that uh, the mind has a modular structure, say that, that there are certain capacities which it uh, exemplifies, which can be separate, distinguished from each other and thought of as operating separately in the, in the production of human behaviour. We have beliefs, thoughts, desires, uh, uh, sensations, perceptions, emotions and so on, uh, and maybe that these modules actually can be identified independently and seen as contributing towards the global effect. Uh, and um, it seems likewise that neuroscience has discovered areas of the brain which are associated with some of these modules, uh, which gives credibility not only to, to that aspect of folk psychology, but also to the idea that neuroscience might, might replace uh, folk psychology. And this gave rise in um, Patricia Churchland's mind to the idea that actually old-fashioned philosophy was dead. Old-fashioned philosophy uh, was um, concerned with analysing the concepts and um, modes of art associated with our folk psychological concepts like belief and desire. But whereas really that is directing our attention away from the truth of the human condition. The truth of the human condition is that we are organisms in which um, the brain is the centre of uh, the centre through which all our information is processed and from which all our actions flow. So really, we need a new kind of philosophy, which he called neurophilosophy, in which um, philosophical questions are translated into questions about the nervous system, questions about how a particular input to the human uh, being is connected to a particular output, through which channels uh, uh, and through what kind of organisation. Uh, and when you think of things like visual perception and um, uh, 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 emotional reactions, you can see the kind of thing that that might amount to. Now, no sooner had she done this, invented this thing called neurophilosophy, than we were barrage, there was a barrage of um, of new subjects, uh, which I'm, I call neuro-everything else. We now have, uh, as taught in universities, neuroethics. There's a centre of neuroethics here in Oxford. Uh, what does that mean? Well, you can think of the kind of things it might mean. It could mean uh, the uh, ethical question arising in the context of, of neurophysiology and the, and the uh, um, medical treatment of neurological diseases. Or it could mean an attempt to rephrase the agenda of ethics in neurological terms. And that sounds much grander. Likewise, we have Neuroaesthetics. There's a journal of Neuroaesthetics, edited by a guy called Samir Zeki, who is the world expert on Neuroaesthetics. 
Whether there is such a subject, however, is not a question that he seems to have asked himself. But it could be there is a, something to do with the nervous system that would solve all those questions relating to the, the grandeur of Michelangelo and so on. There is neuro law. Dartmouth College has a, a department devoted to, to um, neuroscience and law attempting to understand legal reasoning as a neurological process. We have a book on neuroart history. Um, and needless to say, the author of that book has a head start in the academic ladder over ordinary art historians, because he has a method. There's neuromusicology. Uh, there's neurotheology as well. Uh, and there is also what... Um, Raymond Tallis, a neurosurgeon and a Gothland poet, calls neurotrash, which is <laughs> all of that which gets into the newspapers. And you, and you know that a lot of it does get into the newspapers. Now this has a, a great appeal because it, each of these neuro subjects turns one branch of the humanities into a science, or rather a pseudoscience, but it looks like a science. And with that you know, at last, the first thing, I'm, I'm going to be studying hard facts, not those mere opinions that old-fashioned art historians gave us. Okay, so the, the idea is at last we've got a discipline studying the facts. And, um, you know, we have a claim then to a research grant, which uh, most people in the humanities cannot get. <laughs> uh, and the structure of this is that, uh, in that, um, I couldn't defend her, did I? Uh, okay, if anyone else is offended, just get it, walk out quietly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we have one more seat here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> She set an example that you could all follow. Um, oh, by the way, um, I won't be store, store up any uh, offence now, because Roger's going to now a good time at the end for questions and answers. We'll have a good a half an hour or five minutes at the end. Okay, so uh, the idea is that you take some mental concepts which, which are genuinely interesting and perhaps create philosophical and uh, and intellectual and critical problems. You do a few uh, magnetic resonance imaging scans and you add them together and you come up with an answer. But the problem is, what was the question? Uh, uh, a very good example of this is Livet's experiments on free action, uh, which uh, I'll just very quickly summarize. I'm sure a lot of you will know this. Benjamin Livet, uh, uh, a psychologist with an ingenious way of um, posing empirical questions. He starts from a, a, a state of mind that we all know, which is that of deliberately doing something. And he says, well, you know, this is free action. Free action consists in an action caused by an intention. Uh, and an intention is a conscious mental episode prior to the action from which the action flows. Right? So uh, let's assume that that's so. Then we put a, um, the magnetic scanner on top of the brain of the person who's choosing things, choosing to, to press a button as a flower goes round, uh, and we ask him, uh, when did he choose to stop the, the um, needle going around the dial or whatever? And we find systematically 
that, uh, that he reports this intention and this choice some fraction of a second after the neural process which actually initiates the, the movement of his hand. Um, so, that's fantastic. Um, there is an answer. But what was the question? Uh, and so people have been trying to find out find a suitable question, the obvious question to, to come up with is the question, are we free? Do we have free choice? And then, of course, it seems that um, this experiment, according to the popular way of interpreting it, shows that we don't have free choice, because when we make the choice, the action has already been put in motion, and so um, there's nothing that we can do about it. The action proceeds from bodily processes over which we have no residual control. Now, I think um, that's uh, most people would say, yes, that's very plausible, until they look at what the experiment actually does. It starts from a conception of free action as an action caused by an intention, and from a conception of intention as a, a conscious event, mental event that precedes an action. But ask us, is that really true? Is that, is that what an intentional action is? You know, I'm talking to you now, that's, that's an intentional action, but is that, are all my words preceded by some conscious mental event, which is the intention as opposed to the thing that is being done? Obviously not. Uh, and as soon as you start asking this question of really taking the philosophy seriously, you will realize that the idea of an intentional action has nothing much to do with the specific events that cause it. It has much more to do with the kind of reasons that can be given to justify what you do, and the fact that you are able to engage in that reasoning in favour of what you do. So this has no real implication from, uh, uh, when, the con when the question of free will is being considered, nor does it really have any implication for anything, since no question has really been asked. So that's, uh, I will skip over that, I mean this is a very interesting thing of course, and maybe uh, you, can, you can derive a lot of interesting conclusions from that experiment, but certainly you need to ask yourself some questions before you know what those conclusions can be. Now, uh, there's a problem about consciousness, however, and gets in the way of all this neuroscience, Many people say that consciousness is a, a mystery. Colin McGinn expresses this rather beautifully. It says that, um, that there is no, there's no way in which we can understand the mystery of the process which turns the water of the brain into the wine of consciousness. Rather neat way. The only time that Colin McGinn has ever referred to a miracle in the New Testament. Um, <laughs> not consciously, though. Um, we, don't, we know that there is such a thing as consciousness, we all have it, but interestingly enough we also spontaneously attribute it to animals. Uh, um, uh, this creates a problem for certain kinds of theories. I mean, we, we, we talk about what the dog is thinking, what he wants, uh, and we attribute pains, perceptions, uh, emotions and so on, of a primitive kind, but nevertheless these are genuine mental states to animals, and we make a distinction between consciousness and unconsciousness for an animal. If you hit the dog on the head, it's unconscious for a while. <laughs> and most vets know how to make an animal unconscious, or, 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 or at least a subdued consciousness in order to operate on them, whatever. 
So it's not simply that uh, that we, that our condition is involved in uh, understanding this peculiar feature uh, of, the, of the world. But, there is something special about our condition that we distinguish in our experience between the subject of experience and the object always. We identify ourselves as subjects. Um, and you know, how things are to me is a thought that I have. I distinguish the way the world is from the way the world seems. That's not something that a dog ever does. And the way the world seems is the way the world seems to me. So central to my, my thinking about my own mind is this sense that I am distinct from the world of my observation. So maybe th this distinction between some object is part of the problem of consciousness. In other words, that I am, or, I, or the word I is, the problem. Certainly one way of, of, um, of, of uh, bringing this to the fore is to recognize that consciousness is not actually an object of itself. Uh, it's trying to, trying to observe your own consciousness. It's like trying to observe the, um, the edge of your own visual field. If you turn your eyes to, in that direction, your, your, the edge moves as well. So you can never actually put your eyes upon it. And likewise, trying to uh, pin down your own consciousness is like trying to look with your own eyes at your own eyes without using a mirror. Uh, and of course you can't do that. Uh, and th this may look like a psychological fact, but obviously it's, more, it's deeper than that. It's either a deep metaphysical truth about having a, a, a self at all, or else it's a, a truth of grammar or logic. But whatever, however we analyze it, it seems that consciousness is not an object of itself, and so cannot be a datum in any explanatory science. There's no science of the human person, or of the animal mind, uh, in which consciousness is part of the data. The data must always be behavior, brains, nervous systems, and so on, so that the thing that, that, that is most puzzling will always elude the science that uh, purports to explain it. And that may mean that that thing is a nothing, or it may mean that there is a limit here to the possibility of a science of the, uh, of the, mental, of the mental being. Some philosophers, I've just mentioned this because this is a technical thing, say that words like here, I, and now are indexicals. That's to say that they take their meaning from the, the position, the point of view, the, um, the perspective of the person who's using them. They don't have a reference independently of that uh, moment of use. And people have reflected on this and used it to some surprising effects in philosophy. McTaggart, famous philosopher once uh, in Cambridge in the turn of the early 20th century, wrote a famous book on, on um, metaphysics in which he gave an argument for the unreality of time, focusing on the peculiarity of the word now. Um, Jerry Valberg, in a recent book, has tried to resuscitate some of these peculiarities. Tom Nagel, in a celebrated book called The View from Nowhere, points out that any science of the human world, however complete, which gives all the facts, all the nature and everything, will always leave out one fact at least, and that fact will be the most important for me, namely, which thing in this world am I? Yeah. 
I can identify something called Roger Scruton in that world, but, you know, what makes it true that I am that person? So there's some, there's a really difficult question about locating the I at all. But now I'm going to talk about some general arguments about, uh, against the whole neuroscientific <coughs> process, um, why one must call this stuff brain scans rather than than uh, real science. In a controversial book, two, uh, uh, the Max Bennett and Peter Hacker, who is a philosopher here in Oxford, uh, a book called The Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience, um, identify something they call the myriological fallacy. This is the fallacy of trying to explain the property of the whole of something in terms of some of the same property of one of its parts. The characteristic example is Descartes' attempt to explain human behaviour and all the, all the manifestations of the human mind in terms of the <coughs> states of an inner, subjective, uh, substantial entity, the, cognitive, the, um, sorry, the substantial soul, uh, which uh, is concealed within all of us uh, and uh, generating through the body, the, the um, ways in which the, the, its own mental states are expressed. Th- this is an example based on the myriological fallacy. It's an attempt to explain how it is that you and I have beliefs, desires, emotions, perceptions, in terms of something else, that little that thing inside, uh, the ego, which has beliefs, desires, perceptions, uh, etc. In other words, it's not really an explanation, it's a transfer of the problem from the whole to one of its parts. See how that, uh, this is something which we're constantly tempted to do when we're thinking about the nature of the mind. Instead of seeing the, the mind in terms of the whole person uh, that is expressed in it, we try and find some part of that person uh, which is the real locus of the mind and attribute it to that part. But in doing that, we haven't solved the mystery of what the mind is. We've taken for granted that we understand what it is. We've simply transferred the mystery to something else. And Bennett and Hacker give some very plausible examples of, of the neuro-nerds doing just this, taking, taking some mental state and attributing it to the brain or to some bit of the nervous system without advancing understanding at all. I can give you a, a little quotation here from Patricia Churchman, one of her essays. Um, this gives you the language, at least. The brains of social animals, she writes, are wired to feel pleasure in the exercise of social dispositions such as grooming and cooperation, and to feel pain when shunned, scolded, or excluded. Neurochemicals such as vasopressin and oxytocin mediate pair bonding, parent-offspring bonding, and probably also bonding to kit and kin. You, know, you can feel the, the pressure of the reductive um, need in, that, in those two sentences. It's obviously fox, isn't it, that the brains of social animals feel pleasure. Social animals feel pleasure, but do their brains feel anything? Uh, and certainly brains don't feel pain when shunned, scolded or excluded. Um, most brains, when revealed on a plate, are shunned. Um, <laughs> not necessarily scolded, but certainly excluded. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing is, is really a kind of mythopaic uh, pretense of giving an explanation of something, just by attributing the thing to be explained, these difficult mental states, 
to some other entity which is supposed to do the explaining. Um, but of course, it doesn't explain at all. So, and that's an example of what um, Bennett and Hacker call the neurological fallacy. And um, in response to that, obviously we need to put the brain in its place. Namely, it's part of the whole person, it's not the whole of the person. And maybe it's only in when we take a person as a whole that we will understand that he, the, the person's mental state. Now here I um, go off into um, a technicality which, which may be familiar to some of you, but maybe not familiar to others. But let me try anyway and explain this. This is the quest of the problem of intentionality. Most of our mental states, that are, at least those that are of any interest to us, have this um, feature called intentionality by philosophers, according to which they are directed outwards onto objects independent of themselves, or seemingly independent of themselves. So my fear is fear of something. My belief is a belief about something. Uh, my perception is perception of something. But it's a characteristic of this uh, feature of intentionality that the object may not actually exist in reality. Okay? Uh, my, I may just dream the presence of you in this room. I can have illusions of sense, of sense. my beliefs can be false, my emotions can be based on an illusion, and so on. So that, uh, in some way, my consciousness presents me with a picture of the world, is transparent to that picture. But that picture may be true, or it may be false. So, so uh, concepts of truth, reference, and um, the relations between uh, a subject and a possibly non-existent object, of those intentional relations, these are all part of the workings of the mind. We can't actually attribute mental states to a creature if we can't describe its behaviour in terms of truth and reference. And that creates a huge problem for any science of the mind. How can we translate that into a, a purely physical theory of processes in the brain? How can we actually um, identify a process in the brain that could be true or false? A process is a process, it's there or it's not. Um, so that how do we um, cope with this? Now, quite a few philosophers have tried their hand at this. Uh, Dan, Daniel Dennett is perhaps the most um, familiar of them. He, he says well, there's no real problem about intentionality. We can imagine ordinary machines having intentionality. Imagine a thermostat, for example. It, um, it turns up it turns on the heat when the temperature falls to a certain level. We could describe that by saying that when it, when it uh, thinks that the temperature is a certain level, it turns on the heat. It could make mistakes. You know, a bad thermostat can go wrong. So we, the concept of truth is very um, useful in describing the behavior of a thermostat. So what's so special about the human being? Just that the human being is a bit more complicated. The problem with that is that we can easily see how to eliminate reference to truth and, uh, and reference and so on from the description of the thermostat. But not easily from the case of the human being. I'm going to give you um, an argument here, just, uh, which I think is really important because it's, it's again, penetrating the, the culture. 
argument that really information processing of the kind we know from computers is all that's going on in the human brain. And we should understand the human brain as we do a, a computer. Now, I think this is wrong because I think there are two concepts of information. Uh, cognitive science deals in the way in which information is processed by creatures like us. Now, creatures like us are truth-directed creatures. Our whole uh, formation is that of, uh, of creatures who are trying to discover the truth and act upon it. And cognitive science aims to explain perception, belief, and decision in terms of the information processing functions that they encapsulate. Um, but, and, and, and so there's been a whole academic discipline of cognitive science based on this idea that we can understand the kind of information that we have, information that, or information which gives us truths about the world, in terms of this information processing mechanism that we can identify in computers. But is there a single notion of information at work here? When I inform you of something, I also inform you that something. I say, for example, that the plane carrying your wife has landed. That gives you a piece of information in, in the form of a proposition that may be true or false. And information in this sense is an intentional concept which describes states of mind that can be identified and must be identified through their content. So, um, and the intentionality problem that I just referred to is a well-known obstacle in the way of all stimulus-response accounts of that kind of state. But why is it not an obstacle, therefore, in the way of cognitive science? Now, it's surely obvious that the concept of information as information on that is not the concept that has evolved in computer science uh, or in the cybernetic models of human mental processes. In these models, information simply means the accumulated instructions for taking this or that exit from a binary pathway. Information is delivered by algorithms using binary arithmetic to relate inputs to outputs within a digital system. That's how computers work. <coughs> These algorithms express no opinions. They don't commit the computer to living up to them or incorporating them into its decisions, for it doesn't make decisions or have opinions. So, I think here, an example could help here. Suppose a computer is programmed to read, as we say, a digitally encoded input, which it translates into pixels causing it to display the picture of a woman on its screen. In order to describe this process, we don't need to refer to the woman in the picture. The entire process can be completely described in terms of the hardware that translates digital data into pixels, and the software or algorithm which contains the instructions for doing this. There is neither the need nor the right, in this case, to use concepts like those of seeing, thinking, observing, in describing what the computer is doing nor would we have either the need or the right to describe the thing observed in the picture as playing any causal role or any role in the operation of the computer. Of course, we see the woman in the picture, and to us the picture contains information of quite another kind from that encoded in the digitalized instructions for producing it. It contains information about a woman and how she looks. And here's a famous woman. Um, in this picture, you see the birth of, uh, of Venus, as Botticelli conceived it. Um, 
and you're well aware that there is no scene in reality, uh, uh, such a, uh, um, there's no such scene as the one here depicted. Never has been. There is no such goddess as Venus. And that this image, which um, stays in the mind of everyone who sees it for a lifetime, is an image of nothing real. Uh, I mean, there, there she is, all the same. I mean, there was a real woman who served as Botticelli's model, as Simonetta Vestici, mistress of Lorenzo da Medici. But the, that painting is not of her or about her. Um, it's, um, in looking at this picture, you're looking at a fiction. And that's something you know, and something that conditions any interpretation you might offer of its meaning. Right, and um, there's plenty of interpretations of this which um, will tell you what it means. Roughly speaking, it's Botticelli's heterosexual version of Plato's vision of erotic love. So, uh, there is um, a simple example of something that a computer couldn't possibly see, but could, could easily reproduce, as it has done there. So, um, how do we understand, then, the difference between us and the computer? I want to introduce a concept familiar from 19th or 20th century German phenomenology, the concept of the Lebensfeld. It's introduced by Husserl to, to distinguish the way in which the world presents itself to us human beings in the course of our ordinary interaction with it and with each other um, from the way the world is from the point of view of science. Uh, and he... Um, Husserl argued, not very clearly, but nevertheless with um, total conviction, despite the, perhaps because of the unclarity, that um, many of the concepts that inform our action and perception don't belong to any incipient science. We see the world in terms of concepts which couldn't play a role in scientific theory. It's not, as um, Patricia Jackson thinks, that our concepts are proto-scientific, destined to be replaced by the, the, the true science of human behaviour, it's rather that they, they are of a different kind, that they couldn't actually play a part in scientific explanation. But then, not all of them are, to, are aimed at explaining things. Many of them are aimed at interpreting things. Interpreting in the sense of knowing what the meaning of things is, and how we do and ought to relate to them. And the principal way in which we interpret things is through dialogue. <coughs> now this distinction comes out in a distinction which I think most of us make uh, between the human being as a conceived as a, an organism and the person conceived as the, the person you are. In other words, we're each of us used to conceptualizing ourselves in at least two ways. One as this human being, which um, is an organism that <coughs> uh, acts according to the laws of nature governing organisms of that kind. And this person, this, namely me, who is accountable to others, relates to others in the ways that only persons can relate. And this distinction has given rise to a well-known philosophical problem, which is the problem of personal identity. How does the person relate to the, the human being? Is the person simply identical with the human being, or is he, as it were, carnate in the human being for a certain length of time, but with the capacity to survive the death of that human being? 
Or is he simply a, a way in which human beings are? Now that's the problem of personal identity, uh, about which I don't propose to um, offer a solution because I don't think I, I can and I don't think anybody ever has done. But what we do know is that um, there are these two distinct ways of relating to each other. A surgeon who comes across you in the operating theatre um, has to have a very detailed knowledge of the human being. And he looks at you as a one human being among many and operates upon you according to his scientific knowledge to do the best he can to um, rescue you from whatever predicament has put you there. But the, uh, it would be a painful mistake for him to try and relate to you as a person in all this. You know, um, to um, recognize that, uh, that that's the important thing. To want to wake you up to discuss with you, for instance, exactly what he's doing with you and why. Uh, the, the personality of the, per- of the thing on the, on the operating table has been pushed to one side precisely so that the human being can emerge from behind it. And this connects with a distinction that we, I think, philosophers often make between natural and non-natural kinds, or natural, in this case, natural and moral kinds. Um, here's an example of um, something which is both an instance of a natural kind and very much an instance of a moral kind. When Rembrandt looked at his face, his own face, he was clearly um, uh, obsessed by the fact that this is the this is the face of a dying creature, and it's, it's having a good time at the moment. But it's a it's a mortal being whose mortality is written upon its uh, on the lines of its flesh. But that's not what you see in this. What you see in this is a person who's, as it were, being brought into the surface of the flesh, so that the flesh has become transparent to something. And that, that thing, that person, is not simply an instance of the kind human being, it's an uh, instance of a completely different kind, something which has responsibility for its actions, which, um, which looks with fear and apprehension on others, strives to, to relate to them in ways in which, uh, uh, in which they relate to it, and so on. So that the whole um, effort of Rembrandt's self-portraits was precisely to show that you can be both these things, a dying, uh, a dying creature and also a, a, a living soul. Now, uh, so, this just takes me in conclusion from, from thoughts about self-consciousness. I know I'm producing an awful lot of material in this, but it doesn't matter because in the questions you can go back to the things that really interest you. Uh, but, uh, okay, but what, what um, Rembrandt shows in that self-portrait is not just a conscious creature but a self-conscious creature a creature who's not just looking at, um, at himself but is conscious that it's himself that he's looking at no, you couldn't have that kind of portrait of an animal uh, although there are painters who specialise in animals like Stubbs no animal painter has ever succeeded in doing that kind of thing for an animal. Or, or if he did, like, if he tried, like Sir Edwin Lancer sometimes tried, the result was a falling kiss, precisely because this, it can't be achieved. Now self-consciousness is, is not the same as consciousness. Animals, as I say, have consciousness, but we, we have this extra thing. 
Uh, this extra thing consists in uh, our awareness of ourselves as um, subjects of consciousness. It's not just that I have pains and desires and fears and beliefs. I'm aware of them as mine. And that awareness has a very peculiar feature that in many respects it's immune to error. I'm aware that I'm in pain and in, to a large extent I couldn't be wrong about that. There's no way in which I could be in error in thinking that I'm in pain when I am in pain. And likewise, my beliefs. If you say, do you believe that uh, Everest is the highest mountain in the, in the world? And I say, let me see. It looks as though I believe that. You know, that's, that's just be another way of saying I'm not sure whether I believe it. It's not as though your beliefs uh, congregate in your mind, some of them perceivable and others not. Uh, when asked a direct question, you immediately know uh, which, um, what your beliefs are. And if it weren't like this, we couldn't engage in our most important relations with each other, like the relations founded in dialogue. And if, I, if I ask you, um, why, were you, why did you ignore me at the meeting this afternoon? Um, you would say, I didn't ignore you. Um, I was determined to get through the meeting as quickly as possible, and had I um, paused to acknowledge you, there would have been all that problem with Margaret, etc., etc. You know, um, it's not... It, it, that kind of dialogue which goes on all the time between us is our way of sorting things out so that we, um, we relate to each other as human beings do. But if we had to find out what our beliefs were, if we could make mistakes about them, we'd never be able to get that process going. The whole process of dialogue depends upon this idea that the first person has some kind of privileged awareness of his own mental states and is able to present them to the other without question. Of course you can question why he has them and whether they're the right mental states to have, but that he has them is, uh, is not for you to question or, uh, because it isn't a questionable thing. Uh, and this, um, this is something which I think is built into our whole conception of what we are. And, and uh, it means that what we are for each other to a great extent, depends upon how we appear to each other in our dialogues with each other, both in the use of words and with our facial expressions, with all the ways in which we reveal what our mental states are. And we reveal them on the surface of our being. There is, of course, um, there are, rather, attempts to, to say that what we reveal on the purpose is not what we really are, that what we really are is something to be explored in the depth, uh, and that's something which ha had a great uh, fashionable appeal at the time of Freudian psychology. Um, I, I won't go into that now, but except to, to say that there is such a thing as an illusion of death. Often the attempt to find the reality in the depths is more of an illusion than the attempt to, be, uh, to, to see how things are on the surface. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, it's a very shallow person who does not judge by appearances. And, and I think you can see the point of that remark. What we are for each other is revealed, and it's revealed in all our, our ways of behaving. Here's another visual example, just to keep you amused. This is not a very amusing one. This is um, Goyer, one of Goyer's <coughs> pictures of bandits, which is the most wonderful portrayal of shame, sexual shame. 
this woman is about to be raped. But of course, the bandit is much more careful, uh, much more interested for the moment in the value of the cloth that she's wearing. So he's taking it off carefully before exposing her to his terrible violence. And she hides her face because she doesn't want you to look. She doesn't want to see her face. She wants to see you to see uh, that she is a self-conscious being, being subjected to this brutal treatment of be treated as an object and not as such. <coughs> and this is something which is revealed in the whole posture and surface of her body. So there's a, a picture of shame as, uh, as an, an appearance of someone. And let me finish with some thoughts about that sort of thing, about the soul. Um, is it all right if I go on for just five minutes? Right. Um, the concept of the soul is one that we don't use very much now, uh, and for very obvious reasons. It was connected with, with systems of religious belief, which are no longer the common property of mankind. Um, it's something about which masses of metaphysical uh, jargon have been spilt and, uh, and uh, which has become an obscurity as a result. And yet, it seems that we're constantly in need of something like it, describing what is going on in that poor woman in Goya's example. You would naturally want to say what is going on in her soul uh, and the, the destruction that she's feeling in her soul. So, it's not enough to talk about the brain or about the nervous system. It's the whole human being as organized in a certain way that is being subject to this affront and responding accordingly. So the concept of the soul was meant to identify the target of the, of the thoughts and emotions that are alive in our dealings with each other. And these require us to conceptualize each other in a certain way. Uh, and the reason why the console has endured is because it unites certain features of our life as persons that seem to belong together, though we don't necessarily know how. The unity of the person, for example, our freedom, the consciousness of ourself that underlies all our interchanges with each other, that's what I've been saying. The ideas of accountability and the distinction that we make between caring for the other person as a subject and using him as an object, which is what was about to happen to that woman. All those things are, are summarized in the soul idea, which, even if it has metaphysical implications that go far beyond this, um, nevertheless enables us to get a handle on what is distinctive in our condition, and on the kind of relationships which are peculiar for us. Now, um, I think here, in conclusion, some, an analogy might help. When a painter applies paint to a canvas, he creates a physical object by purely physical means. The object is composed of areas and lines of paint arranged on a surface. And when we look at the surface of the painting, we see those areas and lines of paint, and also the surface that contains them. But that isn't all we see. This is going back to the example of the computer and the pixels. We also see a face or in the case of the Goya, um, somebody hiding her face. And that face looks out at us, or, or not, according to the way it is painted. In one sense, the face is a property of the canvas, over and above the blobs of paint. But you can observe the blobs and not see the face, and vice versa. Uh, and um, that's 
a familiar thing with, with modern painting. But and the face is really there. Someone who doesn't see the face in these portraits on the wall uh, is somebody who's um, not seeing things correctly. Um, on the other hand, there is a sense in which the face is not an additional property of the canvas over and above the lines and blobs. For as soon as the lines and blobs are there, so is the face. Nothing more needs to be added in order to generate the face. And if nothing more needs to be added, the face is surely nothing more. So, and every process that produces just these blobs of paint arranged in just this way will produce just this face, even if the artist himself is unaware of the face. So maybe being a person is, is something like that. It's a, a, what philosophers call an emergent feature of the human being. Not something over and above the life and behaviour in which we observe it, but not reducible to them either, and certainly not reducible to some part of them, which is the brain or the nervous system. Once personhood has emerged, it is possible to relate to an organism in a new way, the way that we relate to each other, which is the way of personal relations. Um, just in a like manner, we can relate to pictures in ways that we can't relate to something that we see merely as a collection of pigments. With this new order of relation comes a new order of understanding in which reasons and meanings are sought in answer to the question why. We ask each other, why did you do that? And we give reasons instead of trying just to explain. With persons, in other words, we are in dialogue. We call upon them to justify their conduct in our eyes as we must justify our conduct in theirs. And central to this dialogue are the two features of consciousness and the first-person perspective, which I earlier mentioned as seeming to lie beyond the reach of any science of the mind. Equally important are the concepts of freedom and accountability, concepts which have no place in the description of animal behaviour, just as the concept of a human being has no place in the description of that picture, as it is as a physical object even though it is a picture in which a human being can be seen. So, um, that's the, the thought that I, I want to put before you, that um, the ways in which we describe each other, and which we must describe each other, in order to relate to each other as persons, do not identify things and features of the world that could occur in a scientific theory, even the theory, even the best possible theory of human behaviour, which is the ideal neuroscience that Mrs. Chatham is looking for. So that we are left with the problem, what are we, and what means do we use, or can we use, to understand our condition? Uh, and that's something which, um, which I've got an answer which I will presently confess to at least. So, thank you.